You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. I'm Patrick. If you don't know me, I am one of the pastors here. Um, It's great to be up here this morning and getting the honor of being able to preach this text to you. You know, I've given Will and Jeremy an extremely hard time this week as today's text goes into Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's like, hey, thanks for giving me the text that you don't ever want to preach. So it makes it a little, little difficult for me to be able to exposit this. But just giving them a hard time, you know, and for, it, it's the sovereignty of God as we do these preaching calendars out 18 months in advance. Um, so it, it, it was God's purpose and not theirs. But today we're going to be continuing on in our sermon. Um, we're going to be continuing in the book of Genesis. So we're going to start where we left off last week in chapter 18, and then we're going to go all the way through um, chapter 19. So with that said, it's a lot of verses. So hopefully you've read them prior to today, because we are not going to cover every single verse throughout this chapter and a half, because we would be here until this evening or potentially tomorrow if that was the case, because there's a lot to exposit here. Um, but for those of you who don't know me outside of here, I'm, just, I'm, I'm a bivocational pastor, which means I work a full-time job outside of here during the week. Um, I'm a project came up, and it was about career development, career pathing, and it, it started getting me thinking through my conversation with her how it kind of correlated and corresponded with what we see Abraham doing in the end of chapter 18. Because one of the things my boss asked me, she said, who's telling your story? Who's advocating for you and what are they telling about you? And I want you to think about that as we go through today. So in your Christian life, not just in here, but as you walk out of these doors, what are people saying about you? Do you live in a Christian manner? Do you bring glory to God in the things you're doing? You know, what is that advocacy for you? So last week, Will mentioned that faith is ambiguous. As we go on through the end of 18 and into chapter 19, that we see how this ambiguous faith can sometimes lead to compromise in our life. And we see this with Lot. Our four points today we're going to talk about are going to be God listens, God knows the sin, God delivers from sin, and the effect of sin. So let me pray, and then we're just going to get right into the first point. Father God, we thank you for this morning, and I'm thankful for your people and your elect that are here that that you've drawn close to you. God, I pray that as we go through this text this morning that your people hear what they need to hear, and that God, their hearts are open and their ears are open, and that you are conforming them into your image. God, I pray um, that I'm hidden behind the cross and you are, are, are brought glory in this building this morning. God, we love you and we praise you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So the first point is God listens. So if we remember back in chapter 13, Abraham and Lot separate. Back then he was known as Abram, right? He hasn't, God hasn't changed him in Sarai's name yet in chapter 13. But what this does is this has led both of these men on completely different paths. One has a plan that God has with him to father all nations, and the other leads his life into a life of compromise, even though God is sovereignly placing him into the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And at the end of last week, these men appeared where Will left off in the earlier part of Genesis 18. And if we remember, it ends with Abraham and Sarah laughing because at 100 years old, they were told they were going to bear children. Can you 
that. So I, I'm not going to lie. They're, they're laughing, but they're laughing in, in disbelief because they don't believe what God is telling them. But what happens is that these two um, men come down with a third, which is God incarnate in Jesus, and they come down to physically prepare them for this. And this is where we're going to pick up today in verse 18. So in chapter 18, verses 17 through 19, it says this, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am going to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Church, first off, that should bring great joy to us that the Lord's bringing to Abraham what he has promised. But as I was reading through this, one thing stuck out to me that I want to talk about. It says, shall I hide it from Abraham? So God is saying, shall I hide this, what I'm doing from Abraham? And it brings up the question, does God really want to hide from us what he was doing? We know that he has this covenant. We know that Abraham is going to be the nation or both the father of all nations. And the Bible tells us that God works in mysterious ways. We don't know his ways. We don't know why he does what he does. But here we see it in a different manner. God asked himself this to reveal to us, the reader, what he is thinking. He doesn't ask us to shock us. He doesn't ask us to present any information when we're reading through this. He doesn't ask us to, to make sure that we're justifying Abraham's curiosity. What he wants us to see is that he is going to allow us to see this vision of what he is doing through Abraham. And because of this, Abraham starts this intercession in his heart for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. In verses 20 and 21 of chapter 18, it says, Then the Lord said, Because outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. God didn't need to go to Sodom and Gomorrah to know the sin that the city was riddled in. He didn't need to go down to see the wickedness or the depravity that the city was dwelling in. <clears throat> and as we move on, what happens is, it, it reminds me here um, that we see Lot knowing that Abraham, or Abraham knowing the Lot was in the city, and he's yearning for the protection of his family, because remember, Lot is the nephew of Abraham. And what we see is, if you're a parent, you know this all too well, negotiation starting. We used to do this with Lydia when she was younger than she is now. She's nine, but I remember when she was around the ages of five and six, you go to the store with a young child and they say, hey, can I get a toy? You can get one toy. This is your spending limit. And then what happens? If you give them a $10 spending limit, well, can I get two toys for $5? Can I get three toys for $3? What if I get five toys for $2? Because five toys is much greater and it's better than one toy for a child, right? So we can go to the Dollar Tree and get 10 toys. They're going to be ecstatic over that. But what we're seeing is this negotiation. And in chapter 18, verse 32, we begin to see this is what happens with Abraham and God. In 32 and 33, it says, Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found here. He answered, he being God, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. 
If you've read this chapter already as we've come in this morning, you know that this negotiation, this intercessory starts at 50. So Abraham says, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? And God says, if there are 50 righteous, I will save it. Abraham says, what if there's 45? Then 40, we've worked our way all the way down to 10. And God, knowing what is going on in the city, said, if there are 10 righteous souls, I will save the city of Sodom. But what we see here is that Adam, or Abraham, I referred to him as Adam all through the first service. I don't know why. We'll hope we don't do that today. But Abraham sets this principle right here. He says, will God destroy it if there are a specific number of righteous people? And we know the answer is no, because God hears the heart of his people. Those who he has called to him, those who he has adopted, those he has elected to himself, he hears those people and he hears their hearts. God has made an covenant with Abraham. What would leave us to think that he wouldn't listen to him? What we see is that there's a humility of Abraham that is shining through in this prayer to God at this moment. He doesn't ask God why. He doesn't ask God how. These questions aren't coming. He just wants to know if there's a specific set of righteous people. Will you save this city? There's no boastfulness. There's no arrogance in this prayer. And church, we can fall into this today. We go to God for our own needs. We go to God for our own wants. But my question for you is, when was the last time you went to God in prayer on the behalf of somebody else? When was the last time you didn't throw multiple things up in your prayer, hoping that something stuck and that God chose that to do those works in your life? Abraham's humility and his heart are seen in the specificity in his intercession to God on the behalf of Lot in the city of Sodom. And this reminds me of the scene in Hacksaw Ridge. Some of you may have seen this. Andrew Garfield's playing a conscientious objector by the name of Desmond Doss, and it's based on a true story. He's a conscientious objector who is a Seventh-day Adventist who will not touch a weapon. He refuses to harm the life of someone else. Instead, he strives to be the person that saves them. He wants to be this medic. And in one very specific scene in this movie, as the men who he is charged to be saving do not think he's going to have their back because he's going to be in the midst of all of this battle without a gun. But they didn't know that God was on his side. And he can vividly recall when you look at the interviews of Desmond Doss as he goes back up into hellfire, back into the battle of war, being very specific in his prayer to God. And he says, God, just give me one more. He doesn't ask to save everybody, but he continually says, just allow me to save one more person. And God continually allowed him through that morning and through the evening into the next morning to continue to save souls. And that's what we see here is that we see this very specific negotiation, this very specific pleading that did not stop on the behalf of Abraham for Lot in the city of Sodom. What started at 50 has worked its way down to 10, but what we see in the beauty that even before Jesus came in human form, that God was drawing out of Adam the heart of an intercessor and already conforming him into the image of Christ. 
Romans 8, 29 reminds us and says this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Church, what a beautiful portrayal of the gospel we see here with Abraham in this moment that we see before Christ took human form, that before Christ lived a beautiful, perfect, and unblemished life, there was the heart of an intercessor praying to save the unrighteous through the life of a righteous other. And God answered and said, if there's only 10, the city will be saved. But God knew the sin of the city, which takes us to the second point. God knows the sin. I've been stuck on this show recently, some of you may have heard of it, called Ted Lasso. Quickly become one of my favorite shows, great character development, great writing. But there's one specific character in it named Nate. He calls himself the Wonder Kid because he goes from being a kit man or a water boy for the team to a manager on the team to eventually a head coach for another. It's this great writing, but what we see here is that he knows the way he should live. He ends up not, not liking Ted because he feels that Ted has kind of brushed him off. But as you watch through the show, you just see his actions and his words. He truly loves Ted, but when he's around people that don't, he doesn't act that way. He acts in a completely different way than what he's supposed to. And this is what Lot did. Lot knew that the way, and Lot knew the ways of God. He had walked with Adam, Abraham. He knew Abraham loved God. He followed his footsteps. We'll get that right by the end of the sermon, I promise you. Lot knew the ways of righteousness. He had followed these, this path. He'd been on the footsteps of Abraham. He knew what he should do and what he ought to do. Church, we know his ways. We know his words. But what happens is we allow the world involved in to compromise us. And what happens is we let the world and what's happening sink into us and of allowing ourselves to sink into the world to change it through the words and the love of Christ. But God knew the sin and we see as we move on to chapter 19 or chapter 18, verse 20, it says, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry. He's going to see where the compromise left Lot. So let's walk forward and see that in chapter 19, verse 1. It says, Two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. As to why the gate was mentioned. So in this time in these cities, what the gate would have been, this was an area of communal gathering. So right out here uh, years ago, there's a little bench. This kind of be, used to be a place where old men in the town would come together. They would play music. It was kind of that communal gathering area. And we're just lucky enough to still be in the building that's attached to it. But the gate at this time would have been an area like that, very communal. All the men of the city would have been here. But also, this was an area for judging and for the magistrates to be. So I want you to think about this. The gate allows us to see through to the compromise that led to who Lot is becoming. At one point in Genesis 13.10, we see that Lot is looking toward Sodom. In 13.12, we see that he is setting his tent in Sodom. At 14.12, he is living in Sodom. 
Now in 19.1, we meet him at the gate where he is a civic leader in a city that is so indwelled in its depravity that God is coming to judge it. He wasn't just here, merely here to meet people. I want you to let that sink in. Lot had sunk to the point that he was judging the actions of others in this city. Sin that he knew was wrong. But yet, in 2 Peter, we see that he's referred to as righteous Lot. Doesn't seem a fitting title for what we've come to know about him. But I want, what I want you to see is that the reason he is referred to as righteous Lot does not come from his actions. The reason you are seen as righteous is not because of your actions. It's been imputed through to you through your belief in Christ. But yet, even though he was known as righteous Lot, and this had been given to him freely, his compromise around him had destroyed his testimony within the city. He'd been placed here, and no one was saved. He was wasting his life away. But then we come to ask ourselves, what is the grave sin that is being referenced here? What is the grave sin that God said was in this city? And we see it as we move on through 19, 4 through 6. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called out to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring out to us, bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. There's a lot to be expounded in those very few verses. So when we read that and we say, what is the sin that we see in that? It comes down to the words knowing them. Depending on the version of the Bible you read, it may say to know them carnally. Just depends on that. And if you followed along with us anywhere from Genesis 1 to today, it becomes very clear. When Adam knew Eve, they had kids. When Noah knew his wife, they had kids. So the very specific sin that is pointed out in this specific text is that of homosexuality. The city was overcome with lust and it was overcome with want. And I want you to see that it says not just one or two or a few men, but it said both young and old, all of the men from the city, all the people to the last man surrounded this house. Everyone was giving up all morality and all principles to fulfill their own personal sexual gratification in this moment. At this moment, all the rules of hospitality that would have been understood at the time from the men in the city was forgotten. Violence and immorality led them to overtake the two visitors staying with Lot. But yet, even though we know this and we can look at this in other versions and we can see what that means, we can look at Jude. Some say this isn't what it meant. That's not what they were trying to do. There was no violence involved. There was no sexual immorality involved. But if we look at Jude, and you can read it, it's very short, just only one chapter. If you go to verse 7, it says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah 
and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued their unnatural desires. Lot understood the thoughts of these men and the actions they wanted to commit. And I want you to understand that. Even righteous Lot refers to the actions that they wanted to commit in this moment as wicked. He was clearly disturbed with the behavior that was being shown in this city at this moment. But we also have to understand this might have been a hard argument for Lot to take. In a city where he's compromised himself to the point of not knowing what a morality is, he was assuming his view on wickedness was going to be the same as the people who were trying to break down his door to get to the two guests. Church, as Christians, we should act in this manner, not just in, in the presence of homosexuality, but in all sin. If we abandon the Bible's view of sexual immorality, then what is the guide for sexual morality that we have to follow? Even under the duress of sin, we should never compromise to the sin. But why not? It's because God is a holy, righteous, and just God. We just read it. His way is holy. His way is right. His words are right. And in his sight, we have to hold true to the standards that he's commanded us to. And where do we get that? It's from the Bible in front of you. It's from the words on your screen or on the book in front of you. We have to understand that God is good and he's life-giving. But all too often we forget this and we forget the things that he has done for us. We forget sometimes the circumstances that he's placed us into for his purpose and his glory. We forget the family he's given us. We forget the food we have, the clothes on our back. We forget that everything we have is his. We only get to borrow it just for a season. But yet we try to rewrite the scripture that God has breathed, breathed out. When it comes to matters that God has clearly addressed in his word, we are not to bargain, we are not to negotiate, we are not to change or negotiate. We are called to stand true on the foundation that he has laid for us. And if God has set that standard, what makes us think we are to rewrite that? We know that in Genesis 1, God created man and woman. And then you hear... The argument, well, Jesus never said anything about this specific sin, right? Jesus never addresses homosexuality. But he does in Matthew 19. In verses 4 through 6, as he's talking to the Pharisees, he restates Genesis and says, man and woman were created. And then goes on to say they were left their father and their mother to become one flesh. Church, we have to stand up for the belief that we have, and it's hard. In the world we live in, it, it's extremely hard. And I love this quote by Alistair Begg. He's a pastor in Cleveland, and he says this, homosexual people are either hated or they are affirmed, but the Christian does neither of those. The Christian does not hate because God's word condemns it. But the Christian cannot affirm because of God's word either. We have to be prepared to say that we are unprepared to rewrite the Bible, to accommodate a society that needs the Bible and the Jesus of the Bible. So when you are in front of someone who is sinning and you're called to be able to rewrite that 
historical scripture are you? Later this week, there's going to be a blog coming out on how to view this from a biblical standpoint. It's going to come out on Thursday. It's extremely well written. Will did a wonderful job on it. But what I want us to remember as well is the Bible tells us we were all born into sin. He knows your heart. He wants you to turn away from the sin, but he also wants you to turn away from the compromise that is in your life that is causing you to sin as well. He wants you to turn to him and run to him. In Psalm 119.3, the writer says, they do not compromise with evil and they walk only in his paths. The only path we have to walk is in the righteous path of Jesus Christ that he's already set before us. Then as we move forward into chapter 19, verse 8, it says, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door. One thing I want to point out here is that when he offers to give his daughters up, in this time, there was a very strict view on hospitality and what that meant. As fathers, I think, and especially on Father's Day, right, I have two daughters. To even grasp what Lot is saying here is extremely horrific, extremely horrendous. Lot's made a lot of wrong, hard turns as he's moved into this city. And as a dad, I don't understand how you can even look at this as a viable or justifiable option. Granted, the views on women in this time were not the greatest either. But Lot was in charge of taking care of his guests from a hospitality standpoint to the point of death. He was more in charge of them at this time by welcoming them into his home than he was for his entire family. But giving up your daughters to a brood of vipers seems like a high cost for a sin that these men had. What I love here is that as we see today on Father's Day, the Lot is a horrible father. We are reminded of the great father that we serve, who gave his son for our sins. That God willingly sent his son to die on a cross to save your sins, yet we continue to make mistake after mistake after mistake. We continually and consistently take one wrong turn after another. And at each turn, we still don't see that God is patiently waiting there to deliver us from the harm and from everything that we've placed ourselves into. He is there to save us and guide us out of harm's way. But yet we still don't see that and continually run away from that. We're so compromised from the world that we don't see the readiness to deliver us from our sin that is always there. That takes us to the third point, God delivers us. In verse 12 of chapter 19 through verse 14, it says, Then the men said to Lot, 
have you, anyone else here, son-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. So what I find interesting here is that these angels end up asking Lot, who else is here? What we see is even though they're angelic beings, they're not omniscient like God is. God could have allowed them the opportunity to know who's there, but he's truly, they're truly relying on Lot's, um, Lot's answers for them. They were relying on this information. But Spurgeon also says this about this specific question. The question shows the concern that we should have for the salvation of others in our whole house. So I want you to think about this, church. I want you to think about this just for a moment. Who else is here? So in your life right now, is it a friend? Is it a family member? Is it a coworker? Who is in this place that you need to urgently bring out? And as we're in the middle of Pride Month, here's the most disturbing fact to me. It's not that we do not see eye to eye. It is not that we don't agree on doctrine. It's not that we don't have the same perspective or we view marriage completely differently. But if we truly think that our brother and sister is living in sin and are destined to spend an eternity in hell, how can you not say anything to them? How can you not share the good news of Jesus Christ who was murdered, buried, and then resurrected for your sins so that you could be drawn into the family of God? How can we watch a brother and sister and not show them the love of Jesus? This is for any sin. How can we ourselves live in a state of sin and not expect to call each other out on it? Or even expect them to? The worst thing that we could do for those that we love is to never preach Christ crucified and his willingness to deliver us from death to life. And I think what happens is the question becomes, how can we live like Christ if we don't know? If we see this sin continually in our lives and in those around us, do we know him if we're not preaching about him? How can we preach him about him if we don't know about him? This was the case for Lot's son-in-laws, and I think this is extremely sad is that this man who is known as Righteous Lot goes to his son-in-laws and says, let's get up and leave because God is about to destroy the city. And they think he's joking. Church, that is a sad moment in their time of deliverance. But what we see from this is that even though Lot was sovereignly placed in this city, And while it's possible to be saved, it is also possible to have a wasted life. Lot himself was going to be saved, but those in Sodom were going to be destroyed and accomplish nothing. 
and the compromise a lot had acquainted himself with became the reason those close to him couldn't be saved. He was too involved in the world. He was too involved with the matters at hand around him. He was letting the sin of the city dictate his actions and who he was. And as I was going through some commentary this week, I wish I could find the name of this person who made this quote, but I couldn't find it. But this person said, Lot was in the worst of all places. He had too much of the world to be happy in the Lord and too much of the Lord to be happy in the world. I want to read that one more time. Lot was in the worst of all places. He had too much of the world to be happy in the Lord and too much of the Lord to be happy in the world. Church, that is a profound statement for us because I feel we get caught in that circular motion. We love God, but we allow ourselves to get so caught up into the world and to the things that are happening in the world outside of here that we become truly focused on it, but yet we can't be truly happy with it. But what I want you to do is look at your own life. Does it resemble the life of a Christian? Are you the same person today on Sunday as you are when you walk out of this building on Monday through Saturday? Or when you come in, do you merely pick up your Christian clothing, put it on, and as soon as you get back to your house today, you set it back on the shelf because you only pretend to be a Christian today? What those in your life say about you is important. I remember when I was going through my ordination, I sat down with our ordination council, and Ryan Navy was one of the pastors on it. And he looked at me, and he was like, hey, I called one of your uh, employees. It's like kind of taken aback for a second, right? You're like trying to think, what have I said to this person? How have I acted? Is there anything that is going to have an impact on the way that I'm viewed, right? Because I don't think any of us were expecting him to come to the table and say that. Obviously, it worked out well, but it could have had much other impactful um, position, right? It, It could have turned out bad. But what I want you to understand is that the way you respond and you react to those outside of this church, it matters. If you are sharing the gospel today, and I want you to think about this, if you are sharing the gospel to the person that is closest in your life, would they think you're a Christian or not because of the way that you've acted with them previously? It's not merely enough to act like every other Christian. Church, we are called to act like Christ. So do not let your sin compromise your witness, just like we see with Lot. In verse nine, or chapter 19, verse 16, it says, But he lingered, so the men seized him and his wife and his daughters by the hand. The Lord being merciful to him, they brought him out and set him outside the city. Church, what I want you to understand is that even in the midst of the destruction that Lot knew was coming, the judgment of the city is upon them. In that moment, Lot still lingered. Lot was still so enthralled and encompassed by the compromise and the sin in his life, he did not want to leave it. Even on the brink of destruction, Too much of Lot's heart was still in the city of Sodom. There was an urgency 
and the pep to his step that was needed. It's like, come on, dude, I need you to get out of here. But he's not. And that's how we respond to the sin in our life. We love the way that it makes us feel. We love the glory that the things bring to us instead of the way that we should be bringing glory to God. Sin has an effect on your life, whether you realize it or not. And it is causing you to linger in very specific moments when you should be turning and run to the deliverer of your sins. In this moment, he still loved the city. He may not have loved all of the sin, but he loved some of the sin that he was in. We do not leave our situations or our sins with that sense of urgency. And we are more than okay to sit idly as the world corrupts us. But God would not spare the city, but instead he did spare Lot because he heard the heart of Abraham. He set him outside. The city was spared due to, was not spared due to there not being ten righteous people, only four. But God heard Abraham's heart and saved Lot and his family. And we still see the effect that the sin had on them even in the midst of their trials and their deliverance. That'll take us to the last point, the effect of sin. Chapter 19, verses 23 through 25 said, The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what the ground grew on. Church, God is a just God. We, he will judge us for the sin in our life. It will be a complete judgment and it will be a severe judgment if you do not turn away from your sins. But I want us to realize one thing is that God was not quick in his actions. God was a patient and long-suffering God in this moment. He gave them righteous lot to be a witness. Years before, I, I want you to think about this, years Sodom was beautiful. Remember back in chapter 13 when Lot turned his eyes upon here when he was arguing with Abraham. And Abraham said, you can have anything that God has promised me. Choose what you want. And as he turned his eyes towards Sodom instead of to the heavens, he chose this area that was beautiful, that was Garden Eden-esque. Knowing, not knowing that years down the road, this would be a city so depraved that God would destruct it. But yet nothing to change the hearts of the people. Nothing that Lot said did change the perspective on God. But it wasn't just Lot. There were many other chances that Sodom had. They were saved by ruin from Abraham. They, were, they heard the testimony from Melchizedek. They saw the living example that both of these men had. Yet they still turned their lives away from God. They rejected it. The effect that their sin had was leading them to a destruction of death. And in 1926, it says, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. When she looked back, I want you to understand this. She wasn't merely looking back like she was passing the table to see what someone was having for dinner. This was a connotation in this moment that she was longing for the city. 
She longed for the sin that was there because the city had indwelled inside of her. She was trying to return to it. But what we see here in this narrative is that as she's so indwelled in the city and as she's so caught up with the wickedness that she was living in, that she longed for it in the midst of it to be as it's about to be destroyed. Her heart was hardened and turned away from God. And Jesus in Luke 17, 32, he reminds us of this. He said, remember Lot's wife. Very simple statement with profound meaning. What he means is remember that we are not to long for the corruption that sin has in our life. Do not long for the sin that makes yourself feel good. My prayer for you, church, is that you do not have a heart like Lot's wife, but that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that you live a life that is in true repentance, which means you have accepted Christ and you have fully turned away from those things that you were living in in the past, and you are no longer eyeing them and lingering on them. That you're not looking back, that you're not longing for the life that you once lived, but instead you are faced forward and you're looking towards the salvation that you have been secured. Church, the only thing that you should be looking back on in your life and longing for is the cross that Christ died on so that you can pick it up, die to yourself daily, and look forward to the salvation that you have in him. By not dying to yourselves daily, what happens is you will lead yourself on a destructive path. You will continue to make bad decisions, just like we see here. This life of continual compromise has cost a lot everything. Just a sin in your life can cost you everything. And Jeremy and Will will talk about this this week on uh, one of those videos they like to do, the weird stuff of uh, Genesis. Because there's a lot of weird things in here, right? But you probably notice we haven't covered one topic, and that's Lot and his daughters. They're going to cover that because that in itself is probably an entire sermon you need to preach on. But what you can see from that is that Lot and his family have been so greatly affected with their range of moral values that they continue to live in sin and go right back to depravity even after they've been delivered from it. And as a Christian, this is our daily struggle. We see what God has done for us. We know what we should be doing. We know the people we should be talking to. We know the thoughts we should be having. But we still have thoughts that are sinful. We still have addictions that we shouldn't. We still have relationships that affect our relationship with Christ. We still struggle with this on a daily basis because, church, the world is sweet and it tastes good to us. We see those around us and long for what they have, and we see the corruption around us and we allow it to invade our lives. Just think of the last time you turned on the news, everything that you see that you allow to affect you. We continue to say things we shouldn't because we're in a constant state of battle without considering that Christ has already died on the cross for us and he's already had the wrath of God poured out on him but we're still trying to fight that battle every single day. And because of that, Lot lost everything that he had and his life was ruined. 
He strayed from the path of righteousness. He strayed from the ways that he had walked in. He lived in a city riddled in sin and wickedness. He failed to be a witness to that city that God had sovereignly placed him in. And from his past to his present to his future, he had compromised his sin and allowed himself to walk away from God who delivered him from it all. In spite of being a lousy, sinful person, God still delivers his people, church. And as you come up here shortly and take communion, you're reminded of that on a daily basis, that you once longed for your sin, that you had a life that was so full of sin, you never felt worthy enough to come to Because when you come up here and you take the bread and then you dip it in the juice, you're reminded of the wrath that was poured out on Christ so that you could be brought into the family of God. You are reminded of the sin that you should have paid for, that you had, the debt that you could never pay, and it was all put on Christ as he hung on a cross for your salvation. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.